this was the peak, uh, I would say, and this was the shock. Uh, and I always compare this to 9-11 in the city of Tripoli. So this twin explosion that took place. At that time, we had a coalition of NGOs that were working in Tripoli on peace building initiatives. And we just ramped up the work a lot. And I have a lot of reservations on that. <laughs> uh, but the, the main reservation, I would say, is... The, we, we were doing service delivery like peace was more of a like service that we're trying to deliver to people mm-hmm. instead of being based on what the people want and really can champion or lead That's Bilal Alayubi talking about the situation in Tripoli, Lebanon's second largest city. Now, Tripoli has experienced considerable violence ever since the end of the Lebanese civil war in 1990, but this escalated dramatically from 2011 onwards, alongside the parallel escalation of the Syrian civil war just across the border. This included pitched neighborhood-level fighting and the car bombing of the Al-Taqwa and Al-Salam mosques in 2013. The central government eventually responded with an army-imposed security plan in 2014, but there's been very little progress on the underlying conflict dynamics and grappling with that history. So with some collaborators, Bilal stepped into this gap. They co-organized a series of community dialogues that ended up being called the Roadmap for Reconciliation in Tripoli. The idea was a sort of open-source diagnostic that could be the basis for citizen-led action alongside externally supported initiatives. We get into the details of this. We talk about how a city with so much history and so much economic potential can get left behind in national politics, the limitations of a security-focused approach, the negative peace that was imposed with the 2014 security plan. Against this, the opportunities and limitations of a bottom-up process, and what will need to happen elsewhere for this initiative to make a real difference. This is One Step Forward. My name is Ian Quick. Let's get into it. Starting from the beginning, we met in Belfast, of all places, uh, and we're talking about Tripoli, but I don't actually know where you're from in Lebanon. Where did you (laughs) grow up? What's sort of the short version of your story? Okay, so the very short version is that I was born and raised... No, actually, I was raised in Tripoli, but I was born uh, in Batroun, uh, not very far from here in Biblos, uh, because I was not being... Uh, my, my mother was not able to actually uh, give labor in Tripoli because that week was so intense during the civil war, especially in Tripoli, uh, that they had to go to Batroun. Uh, and then my upbringing was mainly in the city of Tripoli. Um, I, I studied there. I worked there in the beginning of my career. Um, and recently, um, I would say I got more and more um, uh, knowledgeable of so many different neighborhoods that even during my upbringing, I was not able to to visit or see. I mean, I discovered, rediscovered Tripoli when I started work uh, because there were so many places in the city that um, I haven't seen, especially the areas that we will talk probably about in, in a bit, which is the conflict zones or the 
Yeah. Poor side of the city, the poor, the poor uh, neighborhoods of the city. <laughs> and these days, when you meet someone socially, um, friend and friend at a, a restaurant, how do you explain what you do for a living professionally? Um, so I'm a consultant. I, I work as a freelance consultant. I do research uh, mainly. Uh, I do. Uh, I'm a practitioner of uh, uh, work with youth and um, community uh, um, mobilization and community facilitation of community uh, groups uh, uh, that work on uh, causes related to social stability and peace building and so on. So. Um, I do both. Uh, recently, I, I am doing uh, some research on uh, what is called conflict analysis reports uh, na- nationwide and in different places in Lebanon for UNDP. And also I do uh, um, consulting as an advisor uh, for the certain interventions in conflict, post-conflict situations, especially in Tripoli. So I try to specialize somehow in Tripoli um, and uh, the north in general, so Akkar, uh, some other places in Lebanon that I had the chance to work in and have uh, good connections and network uh, with with the local community. Do people, socially, I mean, people get that? Do they understand what you mean? Or does that sometimes sound a bit political and start a different type of conversation? Uh I think some people some people just make fun of what we do. <laughs> and some people make fun of me. So it's yeah, okay. it's uh, yeah, it's more the cynical yeah. the cynical uh, reaction that we get, uh, especially in Lebanon, on the work in on conflict prevention or in general social cohesion or stability or whatever. So it's always like you guys don't like. Don't you give up? I mean, like, just just do something else. Why don't you? Why do you spend more time on this? Uh, and some people actually mean it. In I'll give you one example. Um, when I was meeting a key stakeholder in Tripoli recently, uh, and opening the subject of the roadmap to reconciliation in Tripoli, that uh, uh, to him discussing this. Uh, ideas. The, the reaction was, uh, "Isn't this over? Is aren't we over it in Tripoli? I mean, there is no war anymore. There is, there are no clashes. Like, why are we reopening the subject of peace building? And why do we really need to do anything about it?" The the the, the first uh, impression was that. Uh, Maybe I'm making this up, or you know, like, am I wrong in doing this? Because uh, am I reinstigating hate in the city? <laughs> but then it, it just reflected how sometimes uh, some people are disconnected from the reality, and, and even though they are elected members or elect, elected officials, but they might just be so. Uh, disconnected in one way or another um, but when I delved more into the subject and started giving some examples about why is it so uh, important and 
live examples from the field on on uh, issues like real issues that people still face um that that official said oh yeah and i have this story and i have that story and they were all recent and you know it it was so obvious that everyone still like acknowledges the fact that uh, we have an issue in the city of tripoli but um it's more of that uh, ostrich approach like just putting their head in the sand and saying like there's nothing here or just uh, I used it in the report uh, sweeping it under the rug one way or another uh, and and in Lebanon we're very famous in this because even after the Lebanese civil war um, they like the, the general population in Lebanon wants to just you know, live, uh, uh, for, forget about it and live as if nothing happened, no remembrance, no learning from the past, nothing. Just move on and never forget about it. And they call it resilience. So I'm not sure it's resilience. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how, what to call it, but um, yeah, it, it might be ignorance more than resilience. It's kind of interesting observation because obviously you started doing this kind of work some years ago, despite that sort of uh, cynicism or, or lack of interest in, in dealing with sort of the underlying issues once the, you know, the heavy fighting maybe slows down or stops. How did that come to pass? How did you first get into working on this stuff as opposed to sort of around it, you know, doing, doing business or, or whatever else? Mm, I think the tsunami in 2004 had a big impact on my, on how I see the world or, or what do I want to do. And then I started having some uh, interest in in uh, the refugee work or supporting people who uh, have uh, uh, faced a natural disaster like the tsunami. And then the... This is the Boxing Day tsunami. Not a, uh, huh? This is the Boxing Day tsunami in, in 2004. This was the very, like the, the it hit several countries, Sri Lanka, yeah. uh, Okay. <laughs> I was pretty sure there wasn't a tsunami in Lebanon. <laughs> no, 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 not in Lebanon. No, no. So no, I, I went to Sri Lanka for yeah. Years, so. I called actually. So I, I wanted to go there. I wanted to help. I wanted yeah. to have a Lebanese delegation to go and help there. I don't know. I was just too too excited about it. But people in Lebanon were not. Uh, so I was calling everyone. I don't know how, but I reached the high level people who work in humanitarian NGOs and so on in Lebanon and even like the public sector side and I was saying like we have to go there, we have to do something and they were like but Lebanon, I mean usually they we don't do this, usually people help us <laughs> like we can get 50 volunteers on an airplane to go and help people you know yeah. restore just uh, their tents or their life and so on yeah but it seems some countries or some nations have been used to being beneficiaries and they feel that they don't have any like any role in helping others as well i don't know how many lebanese do actually go as uh, you know peace corps let's say or other, similar to those interventions and volunteering i don't think really we we do have this culture here anyway so and then in, in 2006 the uh, war uh, happened between uh, Israel and, and uh, Hezbollah also. It was rather a short uh, uh, conflict, but um, it, it was definitely uh, a major uh, change or a major uh, 
diversion in, in how I see things and what I really want to do. And then I started to work in this field as of 2007. And this is what I do since then. I think, uh, uh, number one, I had more interest in supporting other areas in Lebanon. Number two, I, I, I felt how fragile, although, you know, the uh, irony is the Lebanese people saw a lot of um, national solidarity uh, between the Lebanese in 2006 and everyone was bragging about how the Lebanese just supported each other, how everyone came together to support, you know, the refugees coming from the south. I, I saw reality because I was in the schools and I was really working with the people here and there and I saw how it, it, it wasn't real solidarity but rather everyone was shocked and it was too, too short of a period and I, I felt that no, there's a lot of work that needs to be done on social cohesion between the Lebanese, uh, especially after something as big as a, a, an internal displacement of a million Lebanese happened overnight. So uh, it would have led to a civil war, definitely, had it been prolonged or protracted in a sense that, uh, you know, south, southern uh, displaced uh, individuals or Lebanese would continue to stay in the north or Tripoli or some other places for a longer time. It, it was an eye-opener, but it was an alarming somehow eye-opener. And I think North Lebanon is relatively poorly understood internationally, I would say. I, mm. I knew very little about it. Um, I still know very little about it, but I mm. definitely knew extremely little about it before coming here. Could you just lay out sort of very schematically um, what conflict dynamics have looked like in and around Tripoli, which is the second biggest city in the country, but mm -hmm. um, I think is not well known yeah. internationally. And people, when you say Lebanon, Lebanese civil war, they think back to, of course, the civil war, 75 to 90. Yeah. And they're not really conscious that much happened after that. But if yeah. you look sort of... In general terms, what are we talking about? Tripoli and around. So I'll I'll just give one uh, background about Tripoli, even in the civil war, that failed to be part of uh, the international as well as the national. Uh, collective memory of the, the uh, people about the civil war in Lebanon. So whenever you talk about the 1975-1990, most of the people would tell you about like Sabra al Shatila massacre, they would tell you about the Moor, they would tell you about so many different, uh, even the Zahle uh, uh, war or uh, blockade, siege. But Tripoli, in particular, no one mentions in the uh, civil war uh, or the history of the civil war. Although there was a massacre that happened in Tabene, mm -hmm. uh, uh, in Syria Street particularly, uh, during the mid-80s, which is, the I believe that it is one of the main reasons why the conflict re-happened or re-occurred in 2008. Uh, because the scar was so deep and big, uh, but it was not allowed to be part of the memory of the people. people uh, even during the 80s when this massacre happened, the families were not allowed to uh, bury their, their loved ones. Uh, the, if anyone goes to a hospital and asks for like the, the corpse, uh, the Syrian uh, army back then would capture whoever is asking about the corpse and they would put them in in prison or torture them. So it was really... 
one uh, big uh, uh, lost memory one way or another. And then between 1990 and 2005, when the Syrian army withdrew from Lebanon, uh, uh, the grip of the Syrian army on the city of Tripoli was very, very uh, strong, especially that it had a lot of uh, relationships with with a deeper uh, uh, societies and communities inside Syria. So Tripoli had always wanted to be part of the Syria. This, you know, in 1920, when the when the great Le- Greater Lebanon was was uh, started as, as an idea, and you know they they agreed on the current borders. Tripoli did not want to join Lebanon. They wanted to stay in Syria. My very poor understanding of history is that the French took it from Syria, mm-hmm. basically to yeah, yeah. annoy this, annoy what. Now Syria take the port away. <laughs> exactly because it was the most important port on the mid, like this side of the Mediterranean. Yeah. You know the, the so it was it was the somehow port and people or the families of Tripoli did not want to join um, and there were protests and so on and I think a lot of people until now believe that Tripoli continues to be punished because of that. Uh, uh, somehow stands uh, um, when Beirut became the capital everything was centralized in Beirut and Tripoli was left somehow to, to for poverty and it wasn't only the civil war that uh, impoverished the city and made it, made it uh, lose a lot of its wealth and a lot of its commerce and so on even in the 50s um, uh, there was a flood in Tripoli, a, a very big flood that happened for the very now you almost non non heard of river called Abu Ali uh, that uh, flooded the whole uh, old side of the city. So the wealthy families who used to live around the citadel, you know, like like any old city with a with a big fortress so they moved to the farther from the river and started building somehow what what we know now as the new tripoli or the newer quarters and neighborhoods of tripoli which led to a change a demographic change in the old city the city started the, the old city started being poorer a lot of people from the uh, mountains started to come and rent cheap places to stay uh, so socioeconomically it it went down in fifty in fifty eight, I think, or no, fifty nine, uh, an American delegation came to assess the situation after uh, the revolution that took place in nineteen fifty eight in uh, Lebanon, and they particularly uh, f- focused on the city of Tripoli to say in their report uh, for State Department that it is poor to a, to a certain degree where communism can actually flourish in it. So it was somehow a flare point, you know. And this is... This is of course, that's, yeah. the, uh, that's the important thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I mean, communism was back then exactly uh, versus terrorism now. But uh, the, the, the whole idea is during that time, e- even 15 years before the civil war in Lebanon, it was seen... As, as a critical point, Tripoli, the city of Tripoli. So again, I think that is more or less the punishment that uh, the city was passing through one way or another uh, because of its, its uh, pan Arab uh, decisions from 1920 and later with Abdel Nasser and being supportive of the you know Egyptian regime back then and so on. So, uh, going, going back into 2008, 2014. So th- during this period, I started working, uh, uh, 
with the uh, international NGOs and this, in particular it was the uh, USAID in Tripoli on a lot of interventions to uh, bring youth together from the Sunni and Dalwit neighborhood. It was more of an activity based but the focus was to create as much as possible uh, spaces for them to interact and so on and do uh, projects. Or, uh, in parallel, the, the situation was deteriorating um, between 2008 and 2011 when it escalated a lot after the civil war uh, that broke up in, uh, in Syria. So once when the Syrian revolution started, the whole dynamics in the city of Tripoli changed. Uh, pre that, it was more like uh, March 8th, March 14th, local local agendas, local uh, divisions. Uh, someone uh, against uh, Hezbollah, you know, like uh, Sunnis against Hezbollah, Alawites with Hezbollahs, uh, and so on. And after that, the whole dynamics changed. It was pro-revolution, uh, Syrian revolution again, uh, and, and uh, anti-revolution. Uh, even the flags in the city, you know, the Sunni area, you would see more the revolution flag in, of Syria. And then in the Jabal Mahsin, you would see Bashar al-Assad posters and pictures all over with the regime flag. And then more escalation and more... Uh, connection to the civil war in Syria, you started seeing more black flags and more Nusra flags and you know, it, it just went with the, with the flow and what's happening inside Syria and the intensity of the clashes that used to happen for a short period of time using very like limited, I would say a type of uh, weapons became uh, uh, much uh, um, stronger mortars were reaching other like farther places inside Tripoli, uh, um, sniping was really becoming like more heavy and more accurate and so on. And then the the peak was with the uh, twin uh, explosion that took place in the city of Tripoli, which we knew and uh, like with more information coming up every time that uh, in like people from Jabal Mahsin were directly involved in it and they were the ones who actually put those cars in front of the mosque so this was the peak uh, i would say and this was the shock uh, and i always compare this to 9-11 in the city of tripoli so this twin explosion that took place it was this as as, as big as 9-11 in the u.s in terms of of the city of tripoli and uh, uh, at that time, we had a coalition of NGOs that were working in Tripoli on peacebuilding initiatives, and we just ramped up the work a lot. Uh, and and we were testing, I would say, the ability of uh, NGOs to work together on uh, on a joint or collective action for peace. Mm -hmm. um, and I have a lot of reservations on that. <laughs> uh, but the, the main reservation, I would say, is um, back then I felt we were service del we, we were doing service delivery. Like peace was more of a like service that we're trying to deliver to people mm -hmm. instead of being based on what the people want and really uh, can um, champion or lead, uh, which is a totally different perspective. When I stopped that, like. Uh, uh, work in 2015 I traveled for a year and then came back and then I wanted to mainly get engaged from a different perspective or from a different angle 
which uh, was the beginning of the research called the Roadmap to Reconciliation in Tripoli. And at that point, we wanted really to uh, hear the people from all, like, all over again and uh, assume that we haven't worked in the city before, assume that most of what we know and what we have done for six, seven years before was just, you know, it was fine, but it's not enough. Um, and we came to sit again with uh, a lot of individuals, around 300 people from, who live on the front lines and ask them the, the, the main questions of what is their real pain now, what, uh, what are the main issues that they uh, identify, uh, what would make them engage in a long-term reconciliation process, what is this? And, and also a major question of do they think they live in peace now or in, in uh, a ceasefire? 95% of the people said it was a, a ceasefire. And most of those words even went further and said a fragile ceasefire. Mm -hmm. And that was two years after the security plan had taken place. For context, this is a very heavy security intervention by the Lebanese army to yeah. physically prevent movement of arms and combatants, um, basically to lock down these neighborhoods and, and restore security uh, through the use of, of, but the threat of the use of force. Is that a fair That's very fair description? It, it was an iron fist, as they say, mm. uh, and it continues to be an iron fist. So the, the idea is in 2014, when this uh, security plan uh, happened, um, unfortunately, the government decided to do it on April 1st. Uh, so everyone thought it was an April Fool. Thing and they just refused, refused to believe it. Like, really? After six years, you chose April 1st as the, <laughs> the beginning of your security plan? So, yeah, it was a joke. Believe me, it was a joke. And everyone did not believe that this will, like, last more than days. Yeah. Uh, but it lasted. I mean, April's food continues until today. Uh, it... it <laughs> Uh, it continues, but the promises of development, because they said it's the security plan will be security mm. and development. So we know, this is what the government was saying, we know, we hear you, we know you're the main major issues, we know how uh, um, the economic situation, socioeconomic situation is one of the major impact and so on, uh, drivers, but this was not the case. Uh, and and what we heard during the research was that we only saw the tanks of the government when we when we demanded the government when we asked for the government government we only see soldiers and tanks we never see ministries that provide services we don't see uh, development we don't see jobs etc. So and people are still waiting. Uh, I mean, the, the the trust is decreasing because even the local authority had not been able to create some sort of an emergency response, uh, some sort of a, a um, you know a plan that would help in the post conflict recovery. Um, and people are left alone to their fate to this to to just uh, rebuild something that was destroyed not only from the six years of sectarian clashes that took place from 2008 until 2014, but also from the previous civil war, that you can still see the scars of them as you walk in the streets of the Benin Jabal Mahsin. What was surprising about that? 
was there anything that you didn't expect? You, know, you said that you started from the standpoint that uh, maybe you don't know, right? That maybe mm-hmm. you had been delivering a service but not genuinely inquiring. Is there what was unexpected or, or uh, surprising? Just to confirm that even the approach that we used in the research was to to make sure that we do not influence the research as people who had worked there. The facilitators of the of the sessions, uh, or or we call them communal conversations with the with the three hundred individuals, uh, were done by. Uh, practitioners, peace builders who are who do not live in Tripoli, who are not from Tripoli, and more than more, uh, they were Christians. So the choice we we chose three facilitators, Christian facilitators, to do those uh, uh, in Sunni and Alawite communities to prevent any bias in what the people might say. So they were uh, seen as uh, people from outside the city. They had no stake one way or another. Uh, uh, and all the information and, and uh, reports that came, uh, we then analyzed it and, and uh, spoke about. So yes, we were surprised by some of the uh, information and the causes or issues that were raised. Uh, maybe we had heard of, uh, you know, the title or the the theme, uh, one way or another. Like for example, you would say um, the issue of the disabled from the clashes. You might expect that there is an issue related to that, but then when you sit and when you see the uh, extent to to uh, how these people really face uh, daily issues uh, or daily difficulties, but also. Uh, uh, the number of the people who face it. So the, the, the scale of the issues were also uh, uh, highlighted to us. But there were other issues that like we heard about them for the first time, especially, for example, um, the Hariri compound issue of communal housing and uh, those uh, apartments that belonged to the Lebanese government and during the clashes, uh, people moved from, you know, like they, they were displaced to safer places and they occupied this apartment. So we did not know about this, this issue. Uh, and I would say the, the, um, uh, the analysis or, or the conclusion, uh, that I personally took from this is even not to look at the conflict in Tripoli, uh, as Jabal Mahsin Bebtebeni conflict, but rather as uh, even neighbor on neighborhood levels. So each neighborhood there and each front line there, and these are around six or seven different communities, had their own spe- like uh, special nuances and special issues that if you want to engage people at that particular front line in a long-term reconciliation process, you need to respond to them on their priorities. So to engage people, you need to go that deep. Uh, and... What were the major points of difference between that neighborhood level process, um, which I think can fairly be called a bottom-up process, um, not maybe down to the household level, but certainly down to the community level. What were the main points of difference between that and the existing way that peace-building or conflict resolution uh, had been approached up till now, or have been conceptualized up till now in the city? 
in the city and elsewhere the the, the issue again is that peace building is seen as a, as a service you know like any any other service that ngos does so we go there we open up a space we get people to come as beneficiaries we provide them with peace building advice or actions or activities or it can be a theater play it can be a rap song it can be whatever but they are all beneficiaries mm-hmm. and that um that thing stops with the with the stop of aid or funding that these ngos get to do that type of work there is nothing sustainable in it uh, except maybe some tangibles that come with the process um uh, but even sometimes the the uh, feel of being left behind by these youth comes as a, a harder reaction uh, on on the people because the, you create dependency you create some sort of reliance on you because you're the one who knows how to make peace in the area uh, and you're going there to provide them with the solution and then they they wake up to reality especially if uh, during the period between 2008 and 2014 there were recurrent cycles recurrent violence around 22 rounds of clashes so every time people believe in you that you're coming here to provide peace or to help us find peace and then you know it's it's i i had hoped that ngos have any uh, power over like the the militias who were doing uh, the, the war but they don't i mean reality is they just disappear whenever clashes happen um so so the approach is uh with the roadmap now and w- what we're trying to do is to really convince people that they have um joint uh, benefits together like in 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 one cause for example the the committee of the disabled that is now that was created almost a, a year ago it it's a committee of individuals who were disabled or injured heavily by the clashes from both communities whether we are there or we are not, these people need to be together in order to uh, advocate for their rights, to be able to be heard. Uh, you know, the, like creating uh, some sort of a power group uh, dynamics uh, around common causes, around common issues. Um, we did this uh, in the communal housing. We did this with the disabled. We did this with the youth who uh, currently... Um, do playback uh, theater, different approaches whereby the common cause is what gathers. It's not everything. It's, you're not going to the community and saying, okay, let's forget everything and become friends and forget the, the issues. And No, but at least if we have an entry point that we can get you to, get, to work together on, at least this will create some sort of an interaction, uh, break some barriers, get people to talk, etc. And this is why I believe that the roadmap to reconciliation is different than other interventions because it's a movement, one way or another, to create a momentum and the foundation for a reconciliation process. It's not an activity, it's not a program of an NGO. Uh, so, But that is comparing reconciliation work or roadmap to reconciliation with other NGO uh, uh, initiatives, let's say, or with other civil society in, in interventions. But also if we compare uh, the, the roadmap to the traditional political reconciliations, which people are used to, uh, that entails only two individuals from two opposing sides to sit uh, in one room, shake hands, take a couple of photos, and 
they consider that they did the reconciliation and it just flows downwards, which never happens because it, it, like these individuals met before, they meet all the time sometimes. This is how the Lebanese defined or used to define reconciliation, that it happens only on a political elite level uh, and it trickles down. And honestly, I don't think it ever trickled down uh, because we can see even on, on a national level the hate speech that is found between the Lebanese on every single issue that comes up from electricity to water to so many developmental issues the way they deal with it there's a lot of anger a lot of hate a lot of um, I would say even just recalling the civil war and recalling whatever happened during the civil war to just say that uh, your boss or your Zaim, we call it, like head of political party, is worse than uh, mine. You know, so you just get all the massacres that were done by your Zaim <laughs> in the civil war to say uh, he is more criminal than mine. Yeah, it, it seems like the, particularly for a complex uh, urban environment, in particular, this sort of very uh, traditional model of uh, a peace process whereby it is leaders sort of meeting and coming to agreement uh, would not correspond at all in the way, to the way in which societies, this very complex sort of urban society, actually functions, right? It's not like there is a, a boss at neighborhood level who is dispensing orders to, to everybody. Maybe there's some. Um, uh, militias that are a bit more organized, uh, but societal conflict, communal conflict just doesn't work like that. The, the thing is, so these people who sit together usually are funding the war, okay? So they are the ones who provide arms, they are the ones who provide money to actually fuel the war. And whenever they decide not to fund it, it stops, which happens in 2014. 2014, it was a decision by the Lebanese government and uh, the Lebanese politicians, which is the same, you know, to use the military apparatus to actually uh, implement the security plan. But had the funding that these same politicians who decided to stop it uh, uh, did not stop because their resources or they wanted to continue to invest in war, it would have continued until now. Yeah, the, the army was there throughout the, the, the period. It's not that the army entered Tripoli in 2014. They were there, but they used to withdraw whenever the clashes start. This time they were asked to remain and to use their iron fist. And, and again, this political decision is what made peace. So I'm not saying that uh, 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 they cannot implement peace or they cannot inflict but that would be the negative piece. I don't know if uh, it's the, the, the best way to, des to describe it, but we now live in, in the negative piece uh, uh, period because the root causes of the issues, the, the, the outcomes of the clashes, the lives of the people did not change for the better. So until we, change, we reach the positive peace period, uh, there is a lot to be done on governmental level, on like civil society level, on security level, on all different levels. And this is why it needs to be a holistic approach that is guided by the people. That is not where the people do not feel that they are beneficiaries 
uh, of peace, but rather peacemakers. One of the points of distinction that struck me was between a focus on an almost sort of moral or behavioral idea of peace building, and these are the values we want you to take forth into the world. So here is a play about that, and you know, go and have these values in your day to day life. This is what it's a caricature, but this is what some sort of peace building mm. programming looks like, right? Whereas what you're describing is much more about uh, quite concrete public policy issues. So I, I totally agree, and I think the ideal the ideal case would be working on both, because raising people on values need to happen in schools, and schools, for example, now especially in the in that area are uh, just a haven for for uh, aggressive kids and. They use all types of violence in those schools, especially I'm speaking about public schools in the areas of the post, like mainly post-conflict areas. Uh, they, oh, you can't imagine the, 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 the scale of violence against uh, teachers and then teachers against students and like the whole system. Definitely values need to be given there and definitely these youth need to, to grow or kids need to grow on certain uh, um, tolerance and, and uh, peaceful uh, ideas. But in the end of the day, if they take all this in school and then they go out to the street, they will be facing reality. And, and this is where those tangible, concrete issues need to be sorted out. In the initial phases of the research, we did meet with key informants and also key stakeholders and uh, officials and so on. And everyone was supportive. Again, this is what they said. In know, principle. Like, okay, of course, in principle. Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, that's sort of the concrete articulation of a shared vision at some point has to include government. There's so many yeah. dimensions that talked about, yeah. uh, reside in large part with government. You can do plenty of things without, but at some point you have to engage line ministries, you have to engage even security ministries, I guess. Um, so, so just to, I, I think to give them the credit, uh, in the, in the um, uh, approach of the uh, Committee of the Disabled, uh, UNDP are partners with uh, the Ministry of Social Affairs, and both are supporting the Committee of the Disabled to actually grow and the technical and they host the meetings in the social development center of the ministry. But honestly, truly, the ministry is not able to provide them until now any main tangents because, again, the decision is centered. The only or, or the main change that might happen on a policy or political level might be only mainly when the power groups become significant enough. Politicians understand numbers, they understand voters. So once that power is developed through the momentum or the movement I told you about, then politicians will respond. I think the movements are still now communal level and they're working on uh, gaining trust and rebuilding relationships and so on, which is more important at this point uh, than like really changing the uh, face of how politics are done in the city. As you said right at the beginning, it's hard not to be sort of a little bit cynical. But what's the, what's the dream scenario? I mean, three or four years from now, 
20 years from now? 20 years? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it would be less within, than... Certainly within our lifetimes, but what, what does this look like for everything to, to move in the right direction to you? To... Um, so to move in the right direction, I think that the best scenario would be uh, a, a real reconciliation plan for the city, not only a security plan. It needs to be a, a, a municipal uh, emergency plan one way or another, whereby the municipality also starts providing those neighborhoods with services like it does for the rich areas. Uh, uh, because, again, I mean, the the uh, the municipality is one and the government is one and all that uh, uh, discrimination between the neighborhoods is not accepted. So it's a, it's a matter of equality. It's a matter of getting the people to speak up for their rights. So a dream scenario would be getting those people their rights, you know, or getting them to, to be able to advocate in the, in the right way and be able to be heard. Uh, um, so a lot of the files will be closed. The file of... Uh, the disappeared would be closed. The, the the file of the disabled would be closed. And when I'm saying closed, it's that those 200 people who were disabled from like the clashes, let's say, would be able to re- receive proper uh, support uh, on monthly basis or health services or uh, be able to get uh, proper jobs because now the law 220 over 2000 is not being implemented. So again, it's a matter of a holistic approach where each file is closed in the decent way that it needs to be closed instead of having those uh, individuals continuously begging support and aid and money from politicians who can actually make that change in their lives just by providing policy instead of providing $100 a month. Yeah, it's very well stated. <laughs> the um, cynical response, perhaps, but uh, a question that is, I think, ever-present here. How... Does one engage with the question of uh, international foreign involvement here? How does that affect the, the calculus? Iran, Syria, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, they, everyone was always part of the dynamics of, of the country in general at large, Lebanon and, and Tripoli in particular. Uh, but I, I also think that there is a lot of fatigue on on a, on a communal level. People are tired from uh, a lot of that politics and also the Syrian uh, conflict, uh, which showed the worst out of the worst in, in humans, I would say. But there is definitely a fatigue and people want to live. Uh, they want to have a job. They want to have some proper health care. They want to have kids graduating from schools. They want, you know, the, the very, very basics. You cannot imagine how much these communities lack the basics. And I believe whenever this very true and honest uh, conversations take place uh, between uh, a, a room, in a room with uh, full of both Sunnis and Alawis, and we say, guys, like, this is reality. We need to work together on one, two, three. And now we're doing it even at a shift at the Social Innovation Hub. There are uh, business development uh, sessions that are taking place for owners of small businesses from both Sunni and Alawit uh, areas. And they're in the same room and speaking the same language of how to revive businesses on the front lines. They're not speaking about Syria. They're not speaking about Iran. They, I, I, I'm not 
saying that they don't care about it uh, or that they are whenever they go and watch the uh, news at 8 p.m. they're not re uh, somehow uh, energized but in the end of the day they are waking to reality on every day and we need to we need to keep them focused on their reality and how to get out of this about the um, local national dynamic what would need to shift in that relationship we need to shift the also the narrative before you know the, the politics because Lebanon at large needs the roadmap to reconciliation in Lebanon. You know, in, in every in every community, in most communities, whether in Beirut, in Mount Lebanon, in in several places in the south, in Zahle, in the Bqa, uh, most of those uh, uh, communities lived the civil war in in one way or another and continues to affect uh, their decisions and political decisions and allegiances to certain political parties and the fear from the other and so on. So the demographic changes that took place in the war during the war with so many cantons being being created here and there uh, across the country of sectarian, uh, similar sectarian uh, constituents, these are all in need of a, of a have a roadmap to reconciliation in that sense, you know, and that conversation needs to be happening across the country. I'm not saying that it's something easy, I know how much we, at least in Tripoli, are, are putting of our time and the dedication to, to get this, like, moving on the baby steps that it does now, but until that really happens, and until we break a lot of the barriers between the communities in Lebanon and between the areas in Lebanon, I I would doubt, I highly doubt that uh, something major will change on a on a bigger policy level. But having said that, there are definitely some sparks of hope that happen here and there with participation of civic-minded civil society uh, in uh, parliamentary elections or in municipal elections which might lead to some change on, on the central level. Uh, but even that, th- there are lots of even differences between the, the communities in Lebanon and culturally and, and uh, socioeconomically and so on. So even that, if it happens on a Beirut level, it does not necessarily trickle down to, to the areas. You know, so now Paula Yaoubian, for example, was elected in Beirut as a, as a civil society, the first somehow civil society candidate or parliament member okay she's there she's doing a good job she's representing a lot of what we might want in the parliament but this does not trickle down to Tripoli or to uh, uh, or expand to Bekaa or to the south you know interests are, might be different than those areas she might not hold the uh, causes that are that that people live there so there there, there needs to be some sort of um, Con- connection or you know like meeting halfway change needs to happen in the center that's definite and it, it needs to happen in the areas as well and they that would be a national movement okay. so what's next for you you invested um, a lot obviously of time and 
therefore time being money, money, um, sense of opportunity costs. You invested a lot of your stuff in this process. But obviously, like the rest of us, you have to earn a living, do jobs for which you are paid in a immediate sense. So how do you see your involvement in this going forward? When, when this research started in 2016, I knew that this will be a career thing or, or like a lifelong thing. It's not something that is, uh, uh, first of all, that is a job. It's not something that I can earn a living from. I believe that whatever I do will be secondary to this approach or to this intervention because this is the, the, the thing that I enjoy the most. Uh, this is the thing that I uh, dream about. So what's next for me, I think, would be to continue uh, uh, in, enlarging the circle of uh, partners, uh, the circle of uh, peacemakers who believe in what we're doing in Tripoli. Uh, maybe with time get this off my shoulders personally and put it on the shoulder of 5,000 people who are really living uh, in the front lines and who believe that this is what they want to do. I don't think that uh, people uh, uh, need uh, a leader in this uh, in particular. They, they need to lead their own way and they need to need... Uh, I see myself as a facilitator now, so... I believe it's flexible. Uh, my, I mean, I can do more uh, consulting, I can do more research, I can do more jobs that are somehow uh, short-term based, but I I don't think it would be easy for me to leave uh, the country and go somewhere else, maybe for a longer-term assignment, uh, because of uh, like my real attachment to this cause and to whatever is, is happening in Tripoli. It's a, it's quite a, it's quite a big and involved thing in a way to um, start an initiative sort of without government sponsorship, without sort of an organizational brand, just go out and do it. Did you get inspiration from anywhere in particular in that? Was there sort of a book or an event or a person that um, propelled you forward in that regard? Of course. So, so during the period when we were creating different groups and coalitions in uh, in the city uh, during the clashes between 2008 and 2014, we we were in that trial and error phase or, or uh, period. And then we met with uh, Professor Patrick O'Malley uh, from the Forum for Citizen Transition, and we went and uh, actually to uh, three uh, different uh, uh, forums: one in Kirkuk one in Kaduna in Nigeria, and one in Belfast. One after Belfast was was uh, thought to be in Tripoli. Like The decision was that Tripoli will be hosting the FCT uh, after Belfast. So when we got there, uh, the main idea was we did not want to just host, host another conference. We didn't want to just get people from all over the FCT uh, cities to come and just sit and discuss and then go home and there is nothing that changes. Not in their lives and not in the lives of 
the tripartite Vinzana. So uh, this is where we said we want to really start a model or, or something that uh, uh, people can also do in their own cities and their own communities, you know, and maybe learn from. But we start and get their expertise to help us uh, move it forward. Unfortunately, the FCT or the forum was not hosted in Tripoli, uh, but we, because of financial uh, things, so we, could, we couldn't afford uh, hosting cost and all that, you know, the, the budget for it. Uh, but it was done as an FCT on Tripoli in Bulgaria, whereby 80 uh, individuals from different cities came and we discussed the first, the early findings of the roadmap to reconciliation. So we put everything on the table and we discussed with them and we got some ideas and expertise from Belfast, from Derry Londonary, from uh, Berlin, from so many different places around the world, uh, whereby people really inspired us to keep going. And I think now Tripoli is one of those cities that is also participating in inspiring, hopefully, other cities to develop something that is a little bit more holistic, but also long-term and not activity basis. You are listening to One Step Forward. We are all about stories of working for social good in hard times and tough places. My name is Ian Quick. Thanks for listening. And just a quick reminder, this podcast thing only really works by word of mouth. So if this episode resonated with you, please share with someone you know who might be interested. Rate us on iTunes or anywhere else for that matter. Join the conversation at onestepforward.fm. Thanks and bye for now.